No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, a podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and this week on the program, once again, we have nobody. This is uh, look part six at the in-depth process of what is a funeral and uh, what are all the elements about it. This week, I wanted to take a bit of a sidestep and do kind of... um, a what-if scenario, and basically look at, since, you know, Halloween is right around the corner, I wanted to look at what happens if it goes wrong. Um, the whole point of the funeral, uh, in a broad sense, is to bury somebody. So is it possible if you are accidentally buried alive? What happens? I thought that would be an appropriately spooky thing for Halloween and for uh, end of October as we get to kind of... Uh, you know, dig deeper into the funerial practices and rites of what we're looking at here. I wanted to see, all right, worst case scenario, what's the flip side? What's the inverse? What if this goes wrong? So we'll take a look at that today and uh, a couple of things about that. But before I jump into it, I wanted to say, again, as always, thank you for listening. I appreciate it so much. It means the world that anybody would take any time out of their day to um, listen to me talk on and on about death and dying and all that happens to us in the great beyond. Um, Furthermore, if you've got questions, comments, feedback, concern, send a note to you're dead too at gmail.com, Y-O-U-R-E-D-E-A-D-T-O-O at gmail.com, or find me on Instagram and Twitter at you're dead too. Uh, happy to respond and uh, include any pertinent info that people sent along. Before we jump in, uh, I recently went on a uh, meditative retreat with some friends of mine. And spend some time out in the woods and just kind of tromping around out in nature and spending time meditating and uh, trying to not be as actively engaged in technology. And I find it was really a surprisingly beneficial experience and it was very, uh, it helped to press reset, frankly. Um, I had been feeling a lot of uh, weird anxiety and just kind of discombobulation, a lot of mental static, and it really help to press reset and kind of let the pieces fall where they may and kind of uh, shake some cobwebs out. So I, I really am trying to come at this with a better headspace and a better idea of what it is that I'm doing. Um, this is just one of the many things I'm, you know, working on in my life, but this is something that hopefully can see some overlap and some beneficial change, some transformation from what I uh, was kind of looking into there. So this is... Um, If you're listening to this fairly recently after it comes out, uh, it's the end of October. It is the 23rd, or no, 24th today as I record this, and uh, Halloween is quickly approaching. I've said in the past how much I absolutely adore Halloween. I don't know exactly what it is. I'm not particularly obsessed with being scared or frightened or... um, you know, grisly stuff. I, I certainly can talk about some gnarly stuff on here, but it's not like I'm actively going in like looking to be upset and disturbed. This is more so an examination of why we do the things that we do and turn over the rocks that we can to figure out what we're doing uh, regarding death in our culture. So it's not like I'm obsessed with horror movies. In fact, I don't really watch that many, but the ones that I do, I really enjoy in the season. I just, I love the the whole ambience of it. I love leaves coming off of trees. I love wind in the trees. I love the cool, crisp air. And there's something magical about Halloween and 
you know, Christmas is right behind it, but there's just something very, I don't know, ethereal, or uh, there's just a feeling in the air that I don't get very often that um, Christmas really does it. I, I, I kind of got a bit of it for 4th of July this year with a very patriot, not patriotic, but like Americana-esque, like small town fair kind of um, cotton candy and Ferris wheels kind of a deal. Maybe as I'm trying to find some peace in my life, I'm able to experience things in a different way. But uh, as Halloween comes on, I just, I'm so excited for it. And to be able to share it with my wife and daughter just is a very, I think very a lot. It's a, it's a really fun thing for me. I really enjoy uh, everything that comes with it and all the decorations and everything. So this is, uh, this is my way of kind of enjoying it is to try to tie something in that's a little morbid, a little unpleasant, a little gross. Uh, so let's look at what happens if you're buried alive. All right, so let's put the unreal back in funeral. Does that work? Not quite. Anyway, point is, today we're looking at premature burial, um, primarily pulling sources from, as always, Wikipedia, and then this uh, intense article on smithsonianmag.com about um, safety coffins for <laughs> people fear of being buried alive by uh, D. Lawrence Terrazano, Terrazano um, which is actually person employed by the U.S. Patent Office, which that's, I'll get to that in a bit, but uh, looking at it from the flip side of what we've been doing so far, I've wanted to look at funerals and how they operate in a grander sense of why do we do this? Why do we have this whole ritual? Why do we have rites that we speak out loud and put somebody in the ground? What's the significance of this? Are we just hardwired to do this in a way that it's a compulsion or a drive? Is there some kind of spillover from a spiritual world into ours that makes us do this act. I mean, it's just, there's something a bit magical about it that, I don't know, it's the unknowable, I guess, you know, and I'm smarter people than me have certainly tackled the subject and I'm continuing to read on it, but uh, this is why I want to hear from people because I'm just one guy digging into the dark here to figure out what's happening, but as an examination of all of it, you can't help but look at what happens if it doesn't go right? Uh, the same reason we have seatbelts in cars or uh, we have anesthesiologists for surgery, you know, not just fingers crossed hoping, oh, they'll probably wake up when the, this dose wears off, but no, you need to have somebody there monitoring in case something happens. Um, people get buried alive. It happens. It has happened. It will happen again. Uh, thankfully, it's become a much more rare occurrence as we have a better and better understanding of death and a better scientific vision for what that means. When I first set out to do the podcast, I remember talking with a friend of mine about what is the moment of death, and they were pretty quick to come back with uh, that it was, you know, cessation of brain activity and uh, no longer breathing, no longer circulating, the heart stops, and I said, yeah, that's, I mean, I can see all that, definitely. I certainly agree with that, but the flip side is we used to consider stuff much less than that, a demarcation point. We didn't have the scientific nuance to be able to say, okay, this is brain death as opposed to a coma or, um, you know, a traumatic head injury or some kind of conscious blackout. We still struggle to understand what it is when we go into unconsciousness and why we sleep. But that kind of got us talking about, well, what is the moment of death? What if we get it wrong? What is the significance of that? What if we 
you know, <laughs> you bury somebody, eventually they stay buried. Uh, but there's the possibility if you do it too early, they're coming back. But uh, premature burial, otherwise referred to as live burial or vivisepulture. Vivisepulture? Vivisepulture. Vivisepulture means to be buried while still alive. Uh, animals or humans may be buried alive accidentally on the mistaken assumption that they're dead or intentionally as a form of torture or murder or execution. We're not going to be looking at those examples so much because if you want to cut to the quick, fast, dirty answer of generally, how long will you live if you've been buried alive? On very round parameters of what happens when you're buried alive? Let's say you're placed in a pine box and put six feet under with dirt on top of you. Ballpark answer, according to what I'm digging up here in my research, is roughly five hours. Uh, that's how much time, uh, assuming you're going to have a general big old freak out because, oh my God, you've been buried alive. Um, that's generally the point at which people would uh, run out of oxygen and then succumb to asphyxiation. Uh, the smaller you are, the better chances of a longer survival simply because your smaller body is using less oxygen. But uh, there's so many variable factors that everything is a unique permutation of that. So that's, I, I don't want to look at the torture, the murderous, the executional form of this. I'm looking more so at the idea of, oops, we got it wrong. They weren't dead. What happens? Because that's, those things are all just grisly torture. This is more so uh, getting it wrong at a funeral. So, um, and <laughs> furthermore, I'm not looking at magic tricks. I'm leaving David Blaine out of this. I'm looking strictly at um, the phobia of uh, uh, trophophobia. Shoot, let me just double check what that's called. It is, um, it starts with a T, taphophobia. That's what it is. Um, as in epitaph, the root word there, uh, taph, meaning tomb or grave. So premature burial can lead to death through the following. Asphyxiation, dehydration, uh, starvation, or in cold enough climates, hypothermia. A uh, person trapped with fresh air to breathe can last a considerable amount of time. Burial has been used as a very cruel method of execution. Um, but again, we're not going down that path. Um, lasting sufficiently long for the victim to comprehend and imagine every stage of what's happening, being trapped in total darkness with very limited or no movement, and to experience great psychological and physical torment, including extreme panic. Um, yeah, the medical term is taphophobia. Um, one of the most early, um, although likely apocryphal and uh, difficult to verify cases of accidental burial, dates back to the 14th century. Um, upon reopening the tomb of philosopher John Dewan Scotus, no relation to the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, he died 1308, uh, was reportedly found outside his coffin with his hands torn and bloody after attempting to escape. Uh, although this is now believed to be a myth, um, Alice Blunden of Basingstoke was said in a contemporaneous account to have been buried alive not once but twice in 1674. So... Let's see what her deal was. Alice Blunden died 1674, was the subject of a notorious early modern account of premature burial. Um, a brief account was published in 1748, but the only detailed description appears in a tract which can be dated from internal evidence to the year 1675. So the tract is quoted in its entirety in Bajent and Millard's History of Basingstoke. Basingstoke? Basingstoke. I don't know. Um, but according to the text... Uh, William Blunden was a 
maltster, and his wife was a, quote, fat, gross woman who had accustomed herself many times to drink brandy. Um, so not a uh, willowy, lithe woman. Uh, one evening, she imbibed a large quantity of poppy water and fell into a deep sleep from which she couldn't be wakened. Uh, an apothecary was consulted, and it was concluded that Alice had died. Husband William had urgent business in London and left instructions that her funeral should be deferred until his return. However, Alice's family considered that the season of the year um, being hot and that she was a very large woman, it would be impossible to keep her uh, lying in state as such. And she was accordingly buried without further delay. A few days later, boys who'd been playing nearby reported hearing a voice from the grave. They were initially disbelieved, but the voice was heard by others and the grave was opened and the body was found to be quote, most lamentably beaten, end quote, which was thought to be the result of injuries inflicted by Alice on herself in her confinement. Um, being unable to c detect any continuing signs of life, those present at the scene lowered Alice back into the grave overnight with a view to summoning the coroner on the next day. On their return, they, quote, found she had torn off a great part of her uh, winding sheet, scratched herself uh, in several places, and beaten her mouth so long till it was all, oh, gore blood. Okay. She was at last definitely dead. The coroner found that her life had been thrown away and bound over several persons to appear. Uh, uh, ah, these notes are garbage. This is my own fault. Um, basically, she came to that first time in the grave, woke up, realizing what had happened, and somehow passed out again from fear, exhaustion, whatever may have you. Went. Oh God, I can't. I can't even. I can't even imagine, uh, and, had, and, had, and had it all done again. I just, I can't, I can't imagine. Uh. Moving on. Revivals of supposed corpses have been triggered by dropped coffins, grave robbers, uh, embalming, uh, attempted dissections. Uh, folklorist Paul Barber has argued that the incidence of unintentional live burial has been overestimated and that the normal physical effects of decomposition are sometimes misinterpreted as signs of the person whose remains are being exhumed had revived in his or her coffin. Um, best examples of those are some of the lore associated with vampires. The idea that nails and hair keep growing beyond somebody's supposed death is really traceable back to... Um, thinner skin around fingernails and hair follicles uh, receding as the body quickly decomposes, creating the illusion that things have grown when in fact it's just skin receding past and back. Uh, newspapers have reported cases of exhumed corpses which appear to have been uh, accidentally buried alive. On February 21st, 1885, the New York Times gave a disturbing account of such a case. The victim was a man from Buncombe County whose name was given as, quote, Jenkins. His body was found turned over on its front inside the coffin with much of his hair pulled out. Uh, scratch marks were also visible on all sides of the coffin's interior. His family were reportedly, quote, distressed beyond measure at the criminal carelessness associated with the case. Uh, another similar story was reported in the Times on January 18, 1886, the victim of this case being described simply as a young girl named Collins from Woodstock, Ontario, Canada. Her body was described as being found with the knees tucked up under the body and her burial shroud torn into shreds. Okay. Uh, this is where it becomes difficult to talk about. Um, there are a few more examples here I could read about, but to briefly address the elephant in the room, it's 
horrifying and mind-breaking. It's, it's a trap from which there's no escape. It's, it's being trapped in a box with no way out, knowing that it is your final resting place. It is no way... It's in no way hard to understand the horrifying, breaking magnitude of having to rationalize it. I, I struggle to even conjure an image of it. I know that there was a movie about 10 years ago starring Ryan Reynolds, I think it was, called Buried, that is a, you know, essentially, it all takes place within the coffin that he's buried alive in as a, as a method of... Uh, torturing him or extracting information, but it's just, it's so horrible. It's so, it's such an affront. It's such a, it pushes against the reptile part of your brain. Um, I've talked about this before with guests in which we kind of chew on the idea of having to put all of this out of mind, that we don't want to acknowledge the fact that we're all going to die. It so much of our natural existence is spent in defiance of it. We uh, we don't really rationalize it very well. We deal with it in a way that uh, it's the thing that we will not speak of. It's he who shall not be named. You know, it's it's hard to look directly at the thing that all of our existence is built around denying and pretending isn't there. And so to imagine being able to be put inside of it. Look, if you want to, go watch that movie. It's horrifying. Uh, I am not somebody who is particularly claustrophobic, but under the right uh, parameters or uh, conditions or provocations, I can certainly sympathize with those who are uh, particularly claustrophobic. I, uh, you know, not that I don't have sympathy for people, but there are some things like um, fear of heights or. Uh, fear of dark shadows or fear of specific animals that you can kind of say, all right, well, I mean, the rationality is you have to live with these things, you know, but uh, being afraid of open water, well, okay, don't go out on the ocean, stay on land. Fear of flying, well, take trains when you can, drive when you can. Um, there's a lot of avoidance there. I know that's not healthy, and if my therapist ever hears this, I'm sorry, doc. Um, but claustrophobia, the fear of confined spaces, I think that that speaks more to uh, that that same primitive lizard brain thing that I was talking about of recognizing the um, the affrontedness, the awful capital O offensiveness of being buried alive, this, this intrinsic idea of if there is this push within us to have some kind of service or ceremony or rite where we recognize and honor and observe the dead and place them in the ground or inter them in some way, that certainly there's some kind of flip side to that where the waking brain says, I should not be in the ground, I should not be here. Like, there's an odd kind of symbiotic um, relation to being in the womb and being warm and comfy and uh, being safe and being swaddled and covered and wrapped and taken care of. The flip side is cold, dark ground, being in the dark all alone and no one will ever hear you, and just, oh god, the mental image of somebody just chewing their fingers down to the bone because they've realized what's, like, just getting the gibbering madness, you know, of, woof, hey, mm. okay, this is what I said about Halloween, this is, this is why I wanted to cover this today, and not, uh, you know, middle of summer. So, um, as far as myths and legends about it, uh, Saint Oran, O-R-A-N, 
was a druid living on the island of Iona in Scotland's inner Hebrides. He became a follower of St. Columba, who brought Christianity to Iona from Ireland in 563 AD. And when St. Columba had repeated problems building the original Iona Abbey, citing interference from the devil, St. Oren offered himself as a human sacrifice and was buried alive. He was later dug up and found to be still alive, but he uttered such words describing what uh, of the afterlife he'd seen and how it involved no heaven or hell that he was ordered to be covered up again. The building of the abbey went ahead untroubled, and St. Oren's Chapel marks the spot where the saint was buried. So... Let's acknowledge for a moment the myth is that this saint chose to be buried alive. What function does the myth have then if the saint is dug up and has no proclamations of heaven or hell that is so bizarrely self-invalidating, not in a 14-year-old atheist laughing at the Bible derisively, but in the notion of like, that is so fascinatingly counterintuitive of you would think the convenient narrative for the myth would be that St. Oren would just have, you know, proclamations of atonement for sin or visions of heaven or visions of hell. I mean, the Bible is not exactly short on these examples, you know. It's it's a collection of visions, and that's, that's so fascinating that the building of the structure, you know, there's... A, Granted, I don't have a Catholic background in that I'd never profess Catholicism, so I don't have a particular affinity for the obsession with the physicality of the buildings that uh, much of the Catholic Church had in the past. But it's such a bizarre, counterintuitive way to get that message out. That's so strange. Um, there's the uh, popular folktale dating back from the 19th to the 14th century about a premature burial in European folklore with the uh, lady with the ring. Uh, in the story, it's a woman who is prematurely buried. Uh, she awakens and frightens a grave robber who's attempting to cut a ring off of her finger, and then she um, either exacts her revenge in a supernatural fashion or um, he falls on his knife in fleeing and uh, stumbles into a grave. It's kind of one of those Twilight Zone-esque, nice try um, stories of, I don't know, desecration of graves that was a problem at the time with resurrectionists. Um, but looking at this article from the Smithsonian Mag, uh, People That Feared Being Buried Alive, Inventing Special Safety Coffins, this is where a lot of fun etymology, fun, uh, fun in quotes, a lot of unusual etymology of words comes in from uh, phrases like uh, dead ringer and... Uh, <laughs> for whom the bell tolls. Uh, let me uh, let me cite a few choice passages here. So, uh, again, written by uh, D. Lawrence Terrazano, uh, published October 26, 2018. History shows that taphophobia, or fear of being buried alive, uh, has some degree of merit, albeit a small one. As early as the 14th century, there are accounts of specific people being buried alive. While likely apocryphal, when his tomb was opened, the body of philosopher... Jo ah, see, here's the same one. John Dunn Scotus of the High Middle Ages reportedly found outside his coffin, hands torn up in a way that suggests he once tried to free himself. Uh, here's... they cite Alice Blunden again. Um, another example of... Oh, this is a modern one. Fegiliu Makamatsainov. Fegiliu Makamatsainov. Nope, I don't speak Russian. Um... F-A-G-I-L-Y-U, 
M-U-K-H-A-M-E-T-Z-Y-A-N-O-V, of Kazan in Russia, collapsed at home following a heart attack in 2011. She was soon declared dead. A few days later, she was lying in her casket at her own funeral. She woke up. She saw that mourners around her crying and praying for her quickly figured out what was happening. and They began yelling, and uh, she was rushed back to the hospital. She lived for an additional 12 minutes in intensive care prior to dying once more, this time permanently. Cause of death was listed as heart failure. Holy crap. That is such a brief, specific window of time to come back that if you read that in a story, you would think it was kind of a weird, cheap way of... <laughs> That's so bizarre and so specific that... What, the shock? Was it too much? Did her body... Was it frail enough that she she didn't... She wasn't able to hold on long enough to survive being revived? That it was a fragile enough system? That's... Uh... It's amazing and astounding. Uh, in the 19th century, master storyteller Edgar Allan Poe exploited human fears in his stories, and the fear of being buried alive was no exception. In Premature Burial, a short story first published in 1844, the narrator describes his struggles with things such as attacks of the singular disorder, which physicians have agreed to term catalepsy, an actual medical condition characterized by the death-like trance and rigidity to the body. Uh, the story focuses on the narrator's fear of being buried alive and the corrective actions he takes to prevent it. He makes friends promise that they will not bury him prematurely. Uh, he does not stray from his home. He builds a tomb with equipment allowing him to signal for help in case he should be buried alive only to wait for one of his episodes. Um, here Poe describes in this passage how the narrator remodeled the tomb. Quote, The slightest pressure upon a long lever that extended far into the tomb would cause the iron portal to fly back. There were arrangements also for the free admission of air and light and convenient receptacles for food and water with an immediate reach for the coffin intended for my reception. This coffin was warmly and softly padded and was provided with a lid fashioned upon the principle of the vault door with the addition of springs so contrived that the feeblest movement of the body would be sufficient to set it at liberty. Beside all this, there was the suspended from the roof of the tomb a large bell, the rope of which it was designed should extend through a hole in the coffin and be so fashioned to one of the hands of the corpse. And, uh, spoiler alert, the character takes all of these precautions only to find that his greatest fear is realized and he is, in fact, buried alive. Um. So that really includes a lot of the examples of how people are attempting to get around this. So here is, and these are all viewable online, uh, patent number 81437 granted to Franz Vester on August 25th, 1868 for an improved burial case. You can see the designs. It appears to be a coffin with a rope pulley system on it. <laughs> uh, the tomb is equipped with a number of features, including an air inlet, a ladder and a bell so that the person upon waking could save himself. Quote, if too weak to ascend by ladder, he can ring the bell, giving the desired alarm for help, and thus save himself from premature death by being buried alive, the patent explains. Here is, oh, this looks unpleasant. Patent 268693, granted on December 5th, 1882, to John Krischbaum for a device indicating live and buried persons. Appears to be some bellows. Uh, the device has both a means for indicating movement as well as a way of getting fresh air into the coffin. The disclosure states it will be seen that if the person buried should come to life, a motion of his hands will turn the branches of the T shaped pipe, section B, upon or near which his hands are placed. A marked scale of the side of the top 
section E, indicates movement of the T, and air passively comes down the pipe. Once sufficient time has passed to assure that the person is dead, the device can be removed. Oh, so that's nice. They can actually determine, you know what, this moved on accident, let's just not pull them out. Patent number 329495, granted on November 3rd, 1885, to Charles Seiler and Frederick, I'm sorry, yeah, Frederick, Frederick Born Traeger for a burial casket. These all seem to be based around similar concepts of bells and bellows. The invention provides for improvements in the important components of previous buried-alive inventions. In this instance, motion of the body triggers a clockwork-driven fan, which will force fresh, breathable air into the coffin instead of a passive air pipe. The device also includes a battery-powered alarm. According to the patent, when the hand is moved, the exposed part of the wire will come in contact with the body, completing the circuit between the alarm and ground of the body in the coffin. The alarm will sound. There's also a spring-loaded rod, which will rise up carrying feathers or other signals. Additionally, a tube is positioned over the face of the buried body so that a lamp may be introduced down the tube, and a person looking down through the tube can see the face of the body in the coffin. Holy Hannah, that is horrifying. Yikes. Okay. Two things come to mind. One... There is a oh, there's a record of I can't remember who it is. There was a saint that has a viewing glass installed into his maybe it wasn't a saint, it was somebody who had a viewing plate installed in their coffin so that you can watch them and view and confirm that they are still in there and see that they have decomposed within there. And that escapes me. If anybody knows who that is, write into the show and I'll uh I'll give you a shout-out next week on the episode for correction and additional detail on that. Um, I, I want to say that it's French, but I am basing that on nothing. The other is the um, the notion of uh, having the communication device from the ground to the surface that uh, it's kind of a famous uh, urban legend, I guess, that um, somebody is buried alive and communicates to the groundskeeper at the cemetery hey i'm down here you know freaking out yelling screaming causing a commotion and the groundskeeper comes over to uh the surface level portion to speak into and asks you know so you're saying you're so and so buried down there yes 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 yes, it's me let me out and you died right no 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 no, i'm not dead let me out let me out and uh the uh groundskeeper says something along the lines of well, it says you died on this date three months ago. And, you know, it's been three months, so if you've been dead down there, I don't know who you are, but you're staying down there. Um, there's a better way to tell that story. I should really find that and uh, just read that straight through as penance for telling that so poorly. But it, these so far remind me of those two things. They just kind of fired off those neurons in the back of my head. Patent number 776566. Granted August 3rd, 2010, to Jeff Dannenberg for a, quote, apparatus and method for generating post-burial audio communications in a burial casket. So here we are in modernity. In this instance, the casket has an audio message system containing audio and music files that are automatically played in accordance with the program schedule, thereby allowing the living to communicate with the deceased. The system allows for wireless updating of the recorded files, giving surviving family members the ability to update, revise, and edit stored audio files on programming after the burial. I mean, on one hand, I get it. But the flip side is, if you truly believe they're down there, and you're wanting to communicate with them, I'm not sure what you're communicating with. 
but, you know, everybody can have their own manner of greeting. Patent number 9226059, granted on December 29th, 2015, to John Knight for, quote, your music for eternity systems. Basically looks like an iPod on the ground in the headstone plugged into your coffin, but let's read about it. The system comprises a solar-powered digital music player, which allows both the living as well as the dearly departed to be comforted by music or a recorded message. There is a speaker in the casket and a headphone jack on the headstone. I don't know how I feel about that. Here's a bit more uh, simple and elegant solution. U.S. patent number 5353609. Tomb robbing was recognized as a problem as early as the early dynastic period, um, as far back as 3150 B.C., and the living have taken measures to protect the dead and valuables back to the time of Egyptian pharaohs. Many of these tombs were equipped with deterrence and safety measures. This invention, patented in 1994, however, is next level when it comes to protecting the deceased's valuables. The apparatus attaches the jewelry worn by the deceased to an alarm system while also securing it to the casket, so even after uh, death do us part, spouses can wear their wedding rings for eternity to guarantee that they are not disturbed. So I don't want to um, dig too far into grisly accounts of uh, murder and attempted assault and various things that have led to people being dumped in graves and come back to life um, due to neglect for humanity. But I'm just I'm fascinated by the notion that this thing that we account for, this thing that we allot for, we do have a deep diving... I'm sorry, we do have a deep driving fear of what it is we're up against. We we recognize ending up in this scenario, this trap, this small thing of being put in these quarters is so bad that we would have anything be done lest we end up down there just to avoid being buried alive. I, like I said, I can't... Uh, I can't blame anybody for having a fear of being buried alive. It's it's horrifying. It's it's the ultimate claustrophobia. It's not just capital C claustrophobia. It's all capital letters claustrophobia. And uh, it's not... Like I said, it's just it, it just so vividly cuts against the grain of our humanity of wanting to be alive and safe and in bright light. I mean, that was the common element among a lot of these patents is just the ability to have sunlight and air eventually just becomes, well, why are we even burying people in the first place if you're so afraid of it? Just have it in your wishes to not be buried. Do a sky burial and that's it. You know, it's kind of an interesting conundrum where you believe in this enough to have to insist that it be done and yet all these parameters in place to make sure that you're not buried alive. It's just, it's a fascinating problem. You know, the resurrection of the body is a fundamental element of a lot of Christianity, and uh, people seem to have taken that very literally. When I talked about cremation a couple episodes ago, it or, you know, burying upside down or burying uh, north to south versus east to west, it's fascinating what we will do to punish or be punitive for people that believe that their body will be resurrected. It's, I don't know, it's heavy, grim stuff, and this was <laughs> just gnarly stuff, so hopefully I haven't scared anybody off for listening next week when we get back to a little more of the more traditional aspects of investigating what is a funeral and how does it uh, how does it happen, you know, what are the more practical, real-world steps of it. I wanted to look a bit this week at some kind of uh, horrifying, spooky elements of 
what if it all goes wrong? What's the worst case scenario? Well, it's chewing your fingers down to the bone and beating yourself in the face in the hopes that you'll, I guess, die faster. Um, I don't mean to be a downer. The material just makes it very easy. (laughs) So thank you for listening. I appreciate it as always. And um, I have every intention of getting my episode up before next Halloween so we can kind of uh, celebrate together as a community. But um, if you don't get a chance to hear before then, happy Halloween. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week.